Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 142, Buddha in a Cup of Tea. This week, we speak with Qigong master Kenneth Cohen about the way of tea. We explore the history of tea, its relationship to Buddhism, and the story of Kenneth's training with Japanese tea master Millie Johnstone. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm in the studio today with a very special guest, Kenneth Cohen. Kenneth, thanks so much for taking the time to drive down from the mountain and join us here. Thanks. It's good to be here. Cool. So just a little bit of of your personal background to frame the conversation we're going to be having, which is on tea, the profundity of tea as it relates to Buddhism and as it relates to meditation, as it relates to really Chinese culture, Japanese culture, which are all very interesting topics. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but first, just to explain kind of your background, you're a longtime Qigong and Tai Chi practitioner. You started 40 years ago. Uh, some people have probably seen your books, The Way of Qigong, and you also have a long history in uh, the Zen tradition and, of course, in the Taoist tradition. And you started your practice in tea in the early 70s, right? In 1973, you said. That's right. And the Japanese tea ceremony. At first. At yes. first. And then later you branched off into Chinese tea culture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was wondering if we could start maybe with a little bit of your personal story, your history with tea, and in particular how it relates to some of your religious practices and your mystical practices. Well, having been involved in Taiji and Qigong for so long, I mean, tea is, is just part of the culture. If you're doing martial arts, as I also have done most of my life, it's very common before the class starts or at the end that you drink some tea. And and there's some good reasons for that. It's not only that the tea inspires a quality of wakefulness with tranquility, but also just in terms of its physiologic effect, it helps the chi, the life force, to flow more smoothly. In fact, tea, as you know, is green color. Now we're talking about tea, that is Camellia sinensis, the leaves of that plant. It's uh, the camellia flower, basically. I mean, it's related to the camellia flower, but it's the leaves of the plant. I'm not speaking about tea as any random herbal infusion. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit confusing in English because if you say cha in Chinese or Japanese, same pronunciation, you know what you're talking about. You know what plant you're talking about. If you say te in French, you know it's different from a tisane, an herbal infusion. But in English, we tend to use the word tea somewhat indiscriminately to mean any infusion of herbs and water. So I'm not speaking about chamomile tea or peppermint tea, but rather the actual tea plant. And whether you're drinking green or white tea or oolong or black, or as the Chinese call it, hongcha, red tea, because the, the leaf actually turns from green towards red, or poor tea, it's all the same plant. It's a, a matter of where and how it's grown, how carefully it's harvested, the hand picking of the leaf, whether you're drinking tea from a single estate or if they're mixed with 
and blended with teas of various estates. All that will change the flavor and the degree of oxidation of the leaf as it goes from green towards red. But again, green tea, oolong tea, black tea, it's all the same plant in spite of the variation in flavor. So that's my interest in what we're talking about today, and it is certainly deeply connected with Buddhism right from the start. In in, uh, Chinese culture, many people have seen the wonderful paintings, sumi paintings, ink paintings of Bodhidharma, the first patriarch of Zen Buddhism in China. He came into China around the 5th century. He was either an Indian or perhaps even a Persian monk. We're actually not quite sure. But he was uh, a, a strong Buddhist practitioner settled in the famous Shaolin Temple, and they say that he faced a wall, the wall of a cave, for nine years. Now, we need to remember, however, that as in reading the Zhuangzi or any of the ancient Taoist texts, Chinese love to exaggerate, to make a point, so we're not really to take this so literally. And I think even many Zen Buddhists I've spoken to would, would not assume that someone, in fact, sat in a cave for those full nine years. So right. I hope no one would consider this blasphemous for me to say this. But uh, Bodhidharma, according to the legend, he sat in the cave, and one day he fell asleep. Well, he was so furious at himself for falling asleep during his nine-year vigil that when he woke up, he snatched a knife and cut off his own eyelids. The eyelids fell to the ground and arose as the first tea plant in China. So ever since that time, tea has been used to keep the meditating monks awake. Now, frankly, I don't think this is a very appetizing story. I probably shouldn't have told it. It doesn't make me want to drink tea. And uh, But again, if you look at those wonderful paintings, Japanese sumi paintings of Bodhidharma, you'll notice the big eyes. Well, look more closely. The eyes are big because often there's no eyelids. So it it relates to that story. In fact, however, tea is much older than that. We don't know how old tea is in China, but there are mention, there's a mention of tea in the Shijing, the classic of poetry. And there in some poems dated to about the seventh or eighth century BC, we see references to a plant called Tu, T-U which probably is a varietal of the Chinese character used to represent tea today. And it may, in fact, be a a longer leaf, larger leaf tea, perhaps more closely related to present-day poor teas. Poor is uh, basically similar to a black tea, that is, the leaf is fully oxidized, so it turns from green to red, but then it's also aged, used to be aged in caves, now it's aged in rooms that are temperature and humidity control, but used to be Asian caves, so it has a very kind of peaty quality. And it's very possible that Tu, the reference to tea in the Book of Poetry, again, 7th or 8th century BC, is referring to Pu'er tea. And, and in fact, we know that Pu'er tea, which comes from Yunnan, is certainly representative of some of the most ancient forms of tea in the world, because we can trace all of tea anywhere in the world, whether you're talking about Indian tea or British tea, or today you've got tea in Kenya and other countries. Tea all comes from Yunnan province in western China, near the border of Tibet, because every tea you can find anywhere, and again, I'm talking about the true tea leaf, not an herbal infusion, any tea you find anywhere in the world, you can find in Yunnan province. So probably spread out from there, across the the silk trade routes and over mountain passes to Tibet and into interior China and and so on. So tea has, I mean, it's an incredible history in China. You've got the connection with Bodhidharma, with meditation in in general, and tea as a basis for ritual practices, including Buddhist rituals, especially in the 
middle Buddhist history in China. I mean, when tea came to Japan, at first it was also deeply associated with Buddhism. There's still the connection there, but it was somewhat secularized through people like Ikkyu, the so-called worldly monk, who felt that tea was rather more a celebration of beauty in the ordinary and didn't necessarily require that one be a Buddhist. That's why you've got Japanese tea bowls with Christian crosses on it. I mean, you've got Christian missionaries that are coming into Japan around the same time the Japanese tea ceremony was beginning. So it doesn't necessarily belong to any religion, but it was certainly developed within the Buddhist context in China. But then again, tea is also connected with other aspects of Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lao Tzu, the old boy, isn't that a great name? That's what it means, Lao Tzu. See, Lao is old, Tzu, child, the old child. Mm. which is one of the goals of Taoist practice and to a certain degree of Buddhist practice because at least if you speak about Chinese Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism, it seems to me to be about 50% Taoism. Well, Lao Tzu was originally a librarian in the Zhou Dynasty court around 4th century BC. And he was disturbed by all of the intrigue and corruption and violence, decided to leave China. And as he was leaving the pass to go out of the borders of China, he was stopped by essentially a customs official whose name was Yin Si, who asked Lao Tzu, seeing he was a, a man of great wisdom, you could just tell from his aura, his presence, and he asked Lao Tzu if he would tell him his philosophy of life. Lao Tzu immediately said, the famous lines, Dao ke dao fei chang dao, ming ke ming fei chang ming, wu ming tian di zhi shi, you ming wan u and so on and so forth. You know, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. The name that can be named is not the named. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of all things and so forth. And when Lao Tzu was finishing his uh, kind of spontaneous Taoist sermon, which Yin Si, the customs official, border guard, was writing down every word, according to the legend, then when he finished, Yin Si offered him the first cup of ceremonial tea. So there's also the connection between Taoism and tea, and of course, Chinese medicine. Most people today, actually, uh, even though the connection with Buddhism is so wonderful, and I have a special interest in that, most people today drink tea because of the health benefits. Right. And they say that Shen Nung, the divine farmer, a uh, figure of high antiquity, no one knows his uh, age or even the age of the legend, they say that he created the first text of Chinese herbal medicine, even though the text was written much later, but it was attributed to him. They say that he wrote this text by tasting each plant himself and sensing, feeling the effect it had on his body. However, to prevent the potentially toxic plants from killing him, he would drink an infusion of the leaves of Camellia sinensis, of the tea plant. Nice. And so he used tea as a detoxifier. Now, I'm not recommending that listeners try that. <laughs> I don't think tea is that strong a detoxifier, but there's some basis to that because we know from even most recent scientific evidence, the effect against bacterial infections. I mean, look at the work that was done against viruses, including the flu virus. Everybody's worried now about swine flu and so forth. Well, there was very good research performed at State University of New York. I think it was at Syracuse on the effect of tea, especially certain chemicals in the tea, on deactivating the flu virus. And it even prevents bacteria, in, potentially in food, from causing tooth decay. Rutgers University did some wonderful studies on the effect of tea on preventing dental cavities. So tea is a fantastic medicine, going way back to the divine farmer, Shen Neng, and as I said, high antiquity in China, but corroborated today by the most recent, really cutting-edge scientific research. Yeah. 
Yeah, and just to uh, kind of backtrack and go back to your introduction to tea, I was wondering, you'd mentioned to me earlier before we started speaking that you actually studied with a Japanese tea ceremony expert who was kind of one of a kind and that you're one of the few people to study with her. Yeah, I was, I was basically her only uh, apprentice. So how did I begin formally yeah. studying tea? Yeah. You know, and why, why would one spend time studying tea? Well, before I even tell you the story, let me share an anecdote with you. Sen no Rikyu, one of the greatest aesthetic geniuses of all time, from Japan, he was once asked by one of his students who he had been teaching Japanese tea ceremony, a ritual choreography of preparing and drinking tea. He was asked by one of his students, Master, could you tell me what is the basic reason for this study? The student had been training with him for 10 years. And Rikyu looked at his student and said, The reason for tea ceremony? Or chanoyu, as it's called in Japanese. First you boil the water, then you prepare the tea, and then you drink it. And that's all. <laughs> the student, I think, was uh, quite upset to hear that this is the reason he'd spent 10 years in study, just to boil the water, prepare the tea, drink it, and that's all. And Riku, seeing his expression, said, show me someone who truly understands these things. I will become that person's disciple. So the challenge of tea, like the challenge of anything in life, whether you're sitting and watching your breath or preparing a delicious dinner for your family, the challenge of tea is how to do everything with our whole being, undivided. So we're not going over the shopping list while we're whisking up the green tea. And so that our whole body, mind, and spirit participates and savors the beauty of that moment. That's a lifetime of training. And it doesn't matter how we get there. You can get there through just sitting and watching the breath. You can get there through chanting. You can get there through watching clouds passing over the mountaintop, through writing poetry, through improvising music. But the essence of it is that presence, that state of being. So I had the good fortune to train with an extraordinary master of Japanese tea ceremony. Here's how that happened. I was a very close friend of Alan Watts. I think you know who he is, of course. He helped introduce Buddhism to the West, wrote many, many books, still in print, was a wonderful speaker, and, and really quite a, uh, well, a serious and not serious Buddhist practitioner. Anyway, during that summer that I spent with him in 1973, he died in November of 73, I asked him before I left California, where I had been one of five scholarship students that he had chosen to do private training with him towards the end of his life. I asked him if there was someone back in New York. For some reason, I felt drawn to going back to New York. I had no idea at that time why. I mean, here I was. I already had five years of Taiji training and Qigong training. I was already speaking Chinese. I'd done Chinese language academically at a couple of different universities. It's kind of on, on my way in my life work. But something was drawing me back to, of all places, New York City, where I was born, rather than staying in beautiful, sunny California. And I asked Alan, in one of my last meetings with him, just three months it turned out before he died, I said, Alan, there's someone back in New York who you know, who I think I'm supposed to know. I'm wondering who this is. And Alan looked at me and he said, I know who it is. It's Millie Johnstone. 
she will become your spiritual grandmother. She is one of the great masters of Japanese tea ceremony. You should look up Millie Johnstone. I go back to New York at the end of that summer, and for some reason I, I waited or hesitated to call her. Maybe I felt a little bit awkward just calling this great tea master out of the blue and say, Hi, Alan Watts gave me an introduction. But when Alan died in November of 73, that day I called Millie Johnstone. I said, Millie, I'm a friend of Alan Watts. I spent last summer with him. He gave me your name and number, and maybe you might not know that he just passed on. Well, her immediate reaction was, oh, come over here right now, dear. Let's have a cup of tea. She was in her 70s at the time. Mm. Well, that cup of tea ended up being three times a week at her home, training in Japanese tea ceremony, and then with the more formal Urosenke tea school. Millie had a certain quality in her tea that was quite unusual. I mean, when she would walk into the tea room, with the various utensils for, again, this is Japanese tea ceremony. You felt that at that first bow, it was only Buddha bowing to Buddha. There was no high, no low. Not even a need for the so-called humble entrance that everybody crawls through in a conventional tea room in Japan that, that symbolically and actually reduces everyone to the same size. When Millie bowed, the rug was pulled out from under you. There was no longer a floor, no longer a ceiling. It was just emptiness, just presence. How did Millie come to that, that place in tea? Mm. When she was in her, I believe it was in her 30s, many years earlier, some 40 years before I met her, her husband at the time owned a zoo near Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And one day around sunset, when Millie was at home with her family and her six-year-old son was playing in the backyard, a wolf in captivity in that zoo escaped. The cage had not been properly shut. The wolf wandered three miles down the road to Millie's house, went to the backyard, attacked and killed her six-year-old son. This is a, a true story, a tragic story. I should tell you, by the way, that there's virtually no record of wolves attacking people in the wild in North America. But wolves, like other animals in captivity, lose their natural instincts. So this is truly a, a horrible tragedy. Millie told me, both personally and later in the book she wrote about her experiences, a book called Brother Wolf, which was published by the Zen Center of Los Angeles. She told me that she left everything she knew of her life, her husband, her home, and went on a search for meaning. She said that two things restored her soul. One was meeting an old Franciscan monk in Gubbio, Italy, who told her the story of St. Francis and the wolf of Gubbio, a wolf that attacked children. And St. Francis tamed this wolf with his love. She said when she heard that story, something inside of her settled. And then the second thing was Japanese tea ceremony. Because in tea, she was at a place beyond birth and death. As Alan Watts used to say to me, you never die because you were never born. You've just forgotten who you are. So again, when I met Millie, shortly after Alan Watts had, had passed, 
and first saw her come into the tea room when she presented me tea ceremony, first time I ever saw a full formal Japanese tea ceremony, I felt that I also entered that beautiful place in which the most ordinary activity, such as holding a tea bowl or sipping the tea or hearing the sound of water dripping from the hishaku, the water ladle, becomes a revelation of the deepest mysteries. Nothing more beautiful, more powerful than that. A wedding, the birth of a child, a cup of tea. The extraordinary experiences I had in Millie's Tea Room, aside from learning the actual practice, that is, how to hold the tea bowl, how to whisk the tea, how to, how to wipe the dust from the lacquered tea caddy, the natsume. Aside from those intricacies of detail, there was a deeper teaching that I would call the, the spirit of tea. And that's what's become, I'm so grateful to Millie because it's become so much a part of my life and the way I think about or feel who I am, the way I relate to others. Well, let me close this section with one, one anecdote typical of so many experiences I had in Millie's Tea Room. Her apartment was across the street from the United Nations. And because of her standing in the tea community, often guests of the American government who were interested in anything to do with Japan or people who had some dealings with the Japanese embassy, they came over to Millie's Tea Room. And one time we had two very distinguished guests. They were ambassadors from two South American countries. And they came at the end of my tea lesson. So Millie suggested that I remain and she would serve tea to the three of us. So I'm sitting there on the guest's tatami, on the guest's mat, with our two distinguished guests. They are were both uh, dressed in business suit, which is fine. You don't have to wear a kimono. And just as Millie comes in with the last of the utensils and begins to clean the tea utensils and wash out the bowl and do the various things that are needed in order to prepare the tea, as she was beginning, there was a horrible sound just above us. Remember, she was in an apartment building, and evidently some workers were just at that moment beginning to replace a window two stories up. And there was a sound of a lot of machinery on the outside. Even with the windows closed in Millie's tea room, we couldn't, could barely hear each other, let alone the sound of the boiling water, which should make a sound like Matsukaze, like the wind in the pines. So I was wondering, what was Millie going to do? Well, she stands up. I'd never seen anyone stand once a tea ceremony begins. You sit there until the guests are finished drinking tea. Millie stands up and starts to walk out of the tea room. And she says, I'll be right back. She leaves the tea room. I'm sitting there quietly with the guests. None of us know quite what's going on. And about two or three minutes later, the noise stops. And a few minutes after that, Millie comes back to the tea room. We bow together, and she says to us, we have some unexpected guests for tea. <laughs> and she's followed by the workers. So they came and joined the two ambassadors and myself to have some tea. That's very much in the spirit of tea, that there's no, as I said earlier, it's only Buddha bowing to Buddha. 
There's no distinction, and yet we're not one. Nice. It's a great story. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the way you've started to see tea as it relates to your spiritual practice and your spiritual unfoldment. And uh, you were showing me a beautiful poem before we started that I thought in some ways really captures it poetically. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit of that with us and, and maybe we could talk about some of the themes there. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And you know, in terms of tea and spiritual development, I mean, whether you're just preparing tea for yourself in the morning, taking a teaspoon of leaves, fresh leaves, I hope, and putting it in your cup and pouring the hot water over and you wait for the leaves to sink to the bottom and they release their wonderful aroma and flavor and color into the water, or whether you're doing a, a complex Japanese tea ceremony or drinking tea Chinese gung fu style, as they call it. Gung fu is more than martial arts. It means any dedicated activity where you, you put the leaves in a beautiful little ceramic pot and there's a special way to prepare tea to get the full experience of flavor, no matter how you're, or even if you're using a tea bag, mm-hmm. just to slow down and pay attention and treat that as your meditation. It's a wonderful experience because you have the meditation and you have the effect of the flavor and aroma of the tea. So tea, to me, is Buddhist practice. It's not a path towards it. So here's a poem I wrote for a tea talk and tea tasting that I offered in uh, actually here in Boulder, Colorado this year, and I wanted to start my talk a little bit differently. I, I don't script my presentations. I like to just relate to the people who are actually there and and to the moment. So I decided uh, a day or two before my tea talk that I would write a poem about my understanding of the connection between Buddhism and tea. And I would read that at the start of my presentation. So I'd like to share it with you now. Uh, This is called The Buddha in a Cup of Tea. Again, it's uh, uh, original work, that uh, a poem that I've written. Too worldly for a monastery, I find Buddha in a cup of tea. Up with the sunrise I sit alone in my cabin, mind washed by simmering water, sound like wind in the pines. This is my solitary quest, Buddha under the Bodhi tree, meditated for seven days until a beautiful sunrise made him give up the futility of revealing what was never hidden. I prefer a simple cup of tea. Seven minutes to boil water, much easier than seven days, complete unexcelled enlightenment. Of course, only if you're paying attention. The Four Noble Truths. First, suffering exists. Why else would we drink tea? A daily taste of paradise in the everyday. Second truth. Suffering is caused by tangha, self-centeredness, grasping, greed. Drink tea and be ego-free. Self dissolves in service to the holy leaf. Guests arrive and Buddha meets Buddha. Third truth, suffering can cease. The teacup is a raft between nirvana and samsara, neither shore more holy than the other. Fourth truth, there is a way to end suffering, the noble eightfold path. Right view, the beautiful leaves, the color of the brew. Right intention, prepare a delicious cup and enjoy. Right speech, no yesterday or tomorrow in the tea room. Right conduct, Spontaneous morality needs no rules. Right livelihood, honest, 
forthright, a good example, right effort, delight in details, gung fu tea, right mindfulness, care for another cup, right concentration, nothing but tea, yet tea includes all. Elaborating on obvious truths, T. Buddha also teaches anatta, no self. How can I know I since I'm the one doing the knowing? I am not I, and T is not T. And anicca, impermanence. The same guests like the same moment never return. One time, one meeting. Tea changes, white, green, oolong, red, poor. Today's longjing tea is different from yesterday's. And tathata, suchness, the being of tea. What is tea? Just this. Just this. Just this. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.